Praised be Jesus Christ, peace be with you. Let me just uh, paint the scene for you here. It is a chilly, gray October morning here in Eugene. And the sky is like a completely blank canvas. Everywhere you look, it's just empty. And I'm walking here in a cemetery. which is adjacent to St. Jude's Parish, one of our Catholic parishes here in Eugene. I'll I'll be helping out there in a little while with a a food box distribution, which is a program that our Archdiocese is doing, has been doing for uh, several months now, since kind of the start of the pandemic. Um, We've got this partnership with some different farmers or I don't know, it's probably some industrial farms or something. I don't really know what the details are, but the upshot is the diocese gets tons of boxes of like fresh produce and even meats and dairies and dairy products and things. And they distribute those out to parishes all over the state. And then at the parish level, we distribute them to people who need them. So it's a nice, it's a nice, uh, service that they've been offering, they've been able to offer. So we're going to distribute those here in a little while. Um, but I have a little time to just walk. And wow, I mean, it's, it's a very desolate day. You hear these, you hear these kind of malicious sounding birds uh, giving their, giving their cause or <laughs> their sounds up here in the trees. There's the sirens going over there. Everything is foggy. Everything is gray and cold. I'm not here wearing a sweater, fortunately, and I have a cup of coffee, so it's not so bad. <laughs> I have been up since early this morning already. I've been up for a long time. Uh, we had mass this morning. I got to the church early to pray before the mass, and then I spent about an hour maybe a little more doing some uh, chant practice in the church this morning because tonight we will be beginning for the first time our Saturday evening Latin Vigil Mass. This is uh, something that Father Ron is is just starting here at St. Mary's. So there used to be a Saturday Vigil Mass before the pandemic and it was, it was uh, discontinued. And so now he's bringing it back and he's sort of reimagining it <laughs> as this Latin mass uh, with the chanted propers, you know, and uh, the, the uh, we'll be singing the Misa de Angelis, as it's called. That's the ordinary part of the mass. So it'll all be with Gregorian chant. There'll be incense. We have a couple boys who will be serving. I'll be singing. And uh, of course, we're a bit limited in the solemnity that we can really do at the moment. But the idea is this Mass will continue to grow and it will continue to uh, 
to uh, you know become more solemn and more and more beautiful as time goes on and uh, yeah and it'll, it'll become sort of the normative mass for the parish this will be you know this will be like the, the high mass it's odd that it's Saturday night rather than Sunday morning but this way it doesn't displace another mass that's already on the schedule uh, so it's I'm very excited about it Father Ron's excited of course I love any opportunity to sing Gregorian chant and so this week though it's been pretty busy all week I haven't had much time to practice I've been kind of squeezing in 20 minutes here half an hour there but today I took the time to really sing through the whole repertoire for tonight there's a few pieces that are, could still use a little polishing but for the most part I feel pretty confident so uh, I might have a chance to just do a little, little bit of practice right before the Mass, but otherwise that's it. Because now we're going to do the food boxes in a little while. This afternoon we have confessions from 3 to 5, which I assist with uh, during our COVID time regulations. You know, we have to, we have, to uh, have someone present there to check people in for confessions and make sure that they remain physically distant and all these different things. And then after that, uh, it's the Mass at 5.30, so what else? Oh, I also recorded a, uh, one of my weekly Eucharistic formation videos today. Um, and so that's, that's another thing I'm trying to get done. Usually it seems to be falling on Saturday mornings, because we publish them on Sundays. Um, I'd like to get them done earlier in the week, but I mean, you know how it is, right? Our weeks just fill up and you've got to get things done when you can. So, I don't have much time to talk today, um, but I will share a little bit about what's been going on this week. Uh, so yesterday, this is by way of a, a preface, I had a conversation with a woman after our daily Mass. She was asking me how I was doing, and I said something to the effect of, you know, I'm plenty busy, <laughs> I've got plenty to work on. But the Lord is faithful and he gives us what we need. Something, something like that. And she replied, she said, well, you know, we used to have a pastor here, Father so-and-so. And he would tell me that um, when the Lord gives us moments of rest, when he gives us moments of joy, of delight, we got to suck everything we can out of those moments. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing here a bit, but that, that suck all you can, that's a direct quote. <laughs> we got to suck everything we can out of those moments, he said. This woman said, rather quoting this priest. And, uh, you know, just live in them and get everything we can out of them because th those, those, those moments are God's gifts to us, right? That's what they're for. And then when we go back down <laughs> from that, we go back down into into times of difficulty <laughs> where we're just struggling along, those moments are what give us the fuel, that's what gives us the power, the fuel for our hearts to persevere and to kind of continue with vigor and with zeal in times when things are more gray and chilly. And so she, in fact, she said, um, she likened it to the transfiguration. You know, Jesus brings his three closest friends up onto the mountaintop and he's transfigured before them. And then they go back down. So she was saying, she was saying, yeah, those moments of real joy and delight are the transfiguration mountaintop moments. You've probably heard this before. 
this is a pretty common analogy, I think, <laughs> for uh, in, in Christian circles. But so you have the mountaintop, and then you go down. And of course, when they go down the mountain, again, they're heading for Jerusalem. They're heading for the crucifixion. And so the Lord, one theory of scripture commentators is that the Lord brought those three disciples with him to the mountaintop to be transfigured before them and reveal his glory, taste of his glory, precisely so as to strengthen them. So that as they go on to Jerusalem, you know, Jesus, his face is set like flint. He's going to Jerusalem no matter what. But the disciples sometimes don't quite get it. <laughs> they don't quite have the full picture and they, just like us, become afraid and they lose heart. And so he gave them that glimpse of his glory to strengthen their hearts, to strengthen their faith. So this is what this, is what this dear parishioner was telling me yesterday. Um, this bit of advice from a former pastor, suck everything you can out of those moments of joy, those moments of rest. You basically use them up for all they're worth because that's why the Lord gives them to us. And, and he's delighted to see us do this. He's delighted to see us if you want to make good use of the gifts he gives us. And in fact, that's a part of what it means, I, I think, to be good stewards of our time. And this has been a uh, kind of a major theme that the Lord's been teaching me in the last couple of months. Um, what it means to be stewards of our time. Because one thing that he is continually reminding me is that my time is not my own. All time belongs to the Lord. He gives us a certain amount of time according to his good pleasure, right? According to his plans for us, you know? And uh, you can think about that in terms of a lifetime. He gives us a certain number of years. Or you can think of it in terms of each day. He gives us each day as a new gift. But it's a bit like, I think, at least this is helpful for me, it's a bit like that parable where the master gives to his servants, each servant a different number of talents, a different amount of money, you know? Then he goes off on a journey, and the disciples, the servants, rather, of the master, are expected to make good use of that money and uh, invest it, <laughs> you know, or basically increase it, make good use of it. And when he returns, he rewards the ones who did so. But the one who just buried his talent in the field is castigated and punished. So the master, the father, gives us a certain amount of time, if you want to look at it this way, but he gives it to us sort of on a loan with the expectation that when he returns, we'll render an account to him for how we used the time. So in that sense, we're, we're, the, we're stewards of it. You know, I always think about in the Lord of the Ring, the Lord of the Rings in the kingdom of Gondor. They've gone for centuries without a king. And so the, the kingdom is ruled by stewards, right? And so the point is one day, they, they're waiting in expectation because the king is gonna come back one day. And when the king returns, they'll hand the kingdom over to him. But they're keeping, they're keeping things going in his absence. So that's what we're like. <laughs> we're the stewards of our time. One day the Lord is going to come. He's going to ask us to render an account, whether it's at the end of the world or more probably at the end of our individual lives. 
so um, what was I saying? Stewardship, time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that, <laughs> that, that might seem like kind of a bleak thought. You know, the Lord is going to ask us to render an account of how we spent our time. Because I know I very often don't spend my time very well. But here's the part of it that I think, I don't know, I think it's, it's comforting. Is that the Lord, the Lord is a good father. God is such a good father. He provides us with all that we need. So yes, he gives us work to do. And we must spend time on it. But he also gives us these opportunities for recreation and times of rest. And part of being good stewards of time is also making the most of those opportunities, you know, to suck everything we can out of them. Like this good former pastor of St. Mary's would say. And so I'm just giving thanks to God because the last couple days, um, they've been difficult days in the sense that they've just been busy and sort of overwhelming. But in the midst of them, each, each day, the Lord has given me some kind of respite, some kind of rest for my soul. And it's in unexpected places. A couple of days ago, I had an old friend pop in to visit me. <laughs> uh, and um, he's a guy I haven't seen in years. I didn't even recognize him behind his mask. Uh, but um, we had a wonderful conversation for about an hour. And that was time I had set aside to work on a project, you know, but I, I spent it talking with this guy. And uh, looking back on that day, yeah, I don't regret that time, even though it meant more work for me later, a little bit of a scramble later to get everything done. That time was a gift from the Lord, which uh, I was very grateful to receive. It kind of changed my whole day and my attitude. And the same kind of thing yesterday. I was doing a little prayer after the, the mass yesterday, um, and I started. I had this, I had this urge to just go outside, and I had a feeling. I don't know if you ever get these kind of intuitions. Sometimes, I just had a feeling that if I went out, someone would be there that I was supposed to meet. I didn't really know. I didn't really know like what to make of this feeling, but I went outside, and uh, I ended up in a conversation with two guys from the parish for a long time. And I wouldn't say it was a particularly spiritual or elevated conversation, but uh, it was good. It was good. I think it was a gift for all of us. And I was just reflecting later. It would have been very easy to ignore or suppress that little, that little nudge from the Holy Spirit, I think, to go outside. It would have been very easy. Or I could have gone out spoken to these guys for a couple minutes, and then told them I had to go, which I did. I had other things to do that I, that I had intended to spend the time on, right? But rather, um, I sucked everything I could out of, <laughs> out of that encounter. I stayed as long as I could. I had a sick call the next hour. So I left in time to prepare for the sick call and to go visit this woman I had made an appointment with. But for as long as I could, I remained there in that conversation. And it did become kind of fuel for my heart to continue strong throughout the rest of the day, you know? And so I just think there's something beautiful about this. I'm seeing the reality of it, of how the Lord provides for us. And we have to live 
I think if we're disciples of Christ, we have to learn to live in a state of poverty. And what that means for me, spirit, spiritual poverty, is we live with open hands. And it doesn't mean that we don't make plans and we don't make preparations and we you know, don't live in a, in a prudent way, <laughs> a prudential way, because we must do that. I've been talking on this podcast before about you know, using the PAR method and the monk manual and preparing my days in advance and scheduling out my time. It's been a big help for me. But we must live with open hands to receive whatever the Lord wants to give us. Because he, you know, when I plan my day, (laughs) more often than not, I'm just filling it up with all activities that I have to do. And I don't really have the wherewithal to think of the times that I actually need to recharge, to, uh, you know, give rest to my own soul. But the Lord is mindful of, of all those needs and he provides the rest that we need. He provides, he provides everything <laughs> that we need in order to be faithful, to live our state of life well, and in order to delight us, to give us joy. He wants to see us happy. This is, that's the great secret of all of our vocations. God wants us to be happy. I used to tell my second and third grade catechism class down in San Francisco last year, We'd start almost every day with me asking them some review questions. And I'd always ask, what does God want for you? And eventually they all learned to chorus back to me, to be happy. God wants us to be happy. It's true. Now we can't understand that in a very superficial way. As if because God wants us to be happy, we'll never suffer. But because he wants us to be happy... He provides all that we need, even in the midst of the sufferings and trials that will surely come. That if we open our hands and our hearts to receive from him, we will be at peace and we will will have joy and our joy will be complete. No matter what we have to endure in this life. And that's something worth celebrating. All right. Now, I'm going to do another circuit of the cemetery. And we can talk for a little while about Henry V, which is the last play that I'm reading in the, uh, the, uh, the Henry cycle. So let's have a few words about that. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely plays. So I finished Henry V last night. Um, (laughs) I will say, so I think it's my least favorite of the three Henry plays. Henry IV, V, and VI. I think the V is probably the weakest. But that's not to say it's it's not a good play. My overall sense of this play is that, um, well, let let me say something else first. In Henry V, we see the payoff of the kind of character transformation of, uh, of Henry V at the end of the prior play, Henry IV. So if you recall last week, we talked about how uh, Henry, when he was a young prince, he was living in kind of a carefree way with Falstaff and his other cronies. But he always had this, of course, mental pressure of knowing that one day he would be the king. And he sort of developed... I don't know if you could say it's a psychological disorder, but he sort of developed two different personalities, right? 
There's the Prince Henry who goes out carousing and robbing and <laughs> having fun and, you know, and, uh, and then there's the, and then there's the Prince Henry who we first glimpse when his father, Henry IV, tells him he must go to war. That's the Henry who eventually dominates in Henry's personality. And he becomes someone cold, calculating. Someone who puts on a, a facade of kind of being the ideal Christian monarch, you know, before the people. But Shakespeare allows us to see in his real behavior that this is a man who is ruthless. And he's more concerned with, appearance, with maintaining an appearance of it being a certain kind of ruler. But behind the facade, he's someone who will do anything that needs to be done in his estimation in order to secure power and to maintain his grip on power. And I think Shakespeare, I think Shakespeare's walking a fine line in this play, right? Henry V, the play, you can see, it's very patriotic. It's very, um, how shall I say? It's a flag-waving kind of a play. <laughs> you know, he, he's, he's showing the... On, on one level, he's celebrating England's great victories in France at the end of the wars. You know, the great victory of the Battle of, of Agincourt, I think is how you say it, or Agincourt, I don't know how it's pronounced exactly, but this wonderful, improbable English victory in France where... Uh, you know, an English army faced off against a French army, tw three times their size, uh, far better trained than an army of nobles and knights, and the English were mostly peasants, and, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> they completely, miraculously overcome the enemy. And so Shakespeare is writing this sort of encomium, this sort of play in praise of England's victories in war. And yeah, he's waving the flag a, l a little bit um, for you know, jolly mother England. <laughs> and yet, so that's one level. And you're welcome to take the play just at that level if you like. And yet I think if you're really attentive to the differences between, for example, what Henry V says and what he does, or what the choruses say, there's a chorus that introduces every scene of this play. The chorus sort of plays it straight, you know, and it's singing the praises of King Henry, the great monarch, and you know, conqueror of all France, and, and da-da-da. But you can draw quite a sharp distinction between what the chorus says about him and what Henry actually does. So, some examples. When they're laying siege to this French town, I can't recall the name of it now, but it's early, it's, it's probably in Act Two of the play. They lay siege to this town, and at a certain point, Henry sends word to the defenders of, of, of the town, which is being besieged, that they, this is their final chance to surrender. And he lays out before them in kind of gruesome, really, in horrifying detail, what he and his men will do to their town if they don't surrender. So he writes about, or he's uh, announcing, threatening them. You know, their white-haired, venerable old man will have their heads dashed against the walls of their homes. Their virgin maidens will be ravished. The babies will be impaled on pikes. 
and lift it up on the city walls. And the whole city will become, become a, 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 a warning or reproach before all of France. Now, this is the same Henry V who, in the chorus, I believe of that act or one of the acts, is described as meek and mild. <laughs> the, the picture of all Christian kings. It's interesting, too, to note how often Henry and some of his, his fellow knights and English nobles, um, sure are a lot of crows out here, how often he and his soldiers will invoke the name of God in the same breath as they're leveling a, a horrible threat against someone or, or shouting out a battle cry, going to war. At least it, it, that should strike us. The, 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 how shall I say, the, 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 the disparity there, the discontinuity ought to strike us. Shakespeare, I think, is revealing something there. What else? There is a scene in which Henry discovers the plot of three of his nobles to uh, betray him, basically, to France. And he lays a plot, he lays kind of a trap for them. So he, in, the, in their sight, in their presence, he has another soldier, I guess, brought forward. And uh, this man has committed some lesser crimes. And Henry uh, announces that he plans to pardon this soldier. And then the nobles, they tell him, no, you must, you must be harsh. Don't let, your, don't let your reputation be destroyed by idle clemency. You must be harsh with those who betray you and betray the war effort. Mind you, these are the traitors <laughs> who are speaking. So Henry then reveals to them that he knows about their own treason. They beg for mercy. And of course, he says, how quickly we change our tunes. And he does not grant it. He has them all executed. But an interesting thing about this scene is that the very same, the very same plot which these three English nobles have levied against King Henry, he's doing exactly the same thing against the King of France. See, earlier in the play, the Archbishop of Canterbury provides Henry with the justification he needs to go to war. And he tells him in a very convoluted plot that you can't possibly hope to follow. <laughs> he describes the logic of different genealogies and lines of succession. It's, it's, it's such a mess, it's impossible to understand. But the, the, the conclusion that the Archbishop of Canterbury offers to King Henry is that he has the right of succession to the French throne because he had a distant relative who had the right of succession, but who was disbarred because it passed through the female line. And the French law prohibits the crown from passing through the, the maternal line, I guess. Um, interesting thing, though, is that <laughs> these three nobles who Henry punishes for conspiring against him, well, they actually, they have a claim to rightful succession to the English throne. And I had to do this research separately. So I can't, I can't quote you the names and, and exactly the reasons, but 
<laughs> suffice it to say, they have a claim which is at least as legitimate as Henry's supposed claim is to the French throne. So you see, you see, the, um, you see the hypocrisy in King Henry here. On the one hand, he is holding up high this, this line of reasoning that he is the rightful successor to the throne of France, and he is going to go to war for it. But on the other hand, these nobles who are following exactly the same line of logic, who say they have a claim to his throne, that, that can't be entertained. <laughs> They're going to be executed and, or thrown in prison or something right away. So you see the kind of man that King Henry is. Um, and it's, it's tragic. It really is. Now, one interesting thing in this play is that we get a glimpse of Henry as he sort of used to be. And it occurs before this famous battle of Agincourt, or Agincourt, in the middle of the night. And he goes out dressed as just one of the guys. He's, he's left behind his royal attire. He's uh, cast off all ceremony. And he goes out amongst them as just a soldier among soldiers. And people don't recognize him in the dark. And uh, he gives a wonderful soliloquy at one point about ceremony and his distaste for ceremony and wondering, you know, what, what, what is the good really of being a king? What does a king get out of it? And basically he says that, that uh, the kingship is sort of empty show. And the king himself benefits nothing from being the king. His only gain is ceremony, which is pomp and circumstance, ultimately meaningless. So we get a glimpse of, of kind of the Prince Henry we used to know in this one nighttime soliloquy. But it's interesting, it's sort of, you know, this, this Henry is still alive, but he's being, he's being suppressed by King Henry, this side of his personality. We don't see it other than in this one kind of nighttime glimpse. During the day, when the king meets those same men he spoke to during the night as sort of friends and equals, when he encounters them in the day as the king, it's a completely different story. <laughs> and of course, of course it must be. This is what we expect. But it is in a way tragic, isn't it? King Henry he is a, a, really a tragic figure, yeah. In spite of his victories in war, his conquest of France, the great, the great uh, victories and treasures that he won for England, he in himself is a tragic figure. Interesting, at the end of the play, we see this kind of, this kind of, um, you, you could say, um, symmetry or parallelism between the overarching plot and the underplot. Throughout the play, we get these characters, you know, Pistol and Bardolph and some of these former friends of Sir John Falstaff, who are now soldiers in Henry's army. And we get to enjoy some comic relief kind of moments with them throughout the play. Now, at the very end of the play, um, there's an encounter between two such characters. I don't remember their names, unfortunately. I'm having a terrible time with names recently. But um, basically, the scene is... One of the, of the soldiers has insulted the other one, who is Welsh, and he wears a leek in his hat, you know, the vegetable. And it's a symbol of some Welsh victory that was won sometime in the past. So all the Welsh soldiers wear these leeks, 
Well, the other soldier has insulted him. And so the Welsh guy <laughs> pummels him and then makes him eat the leek. <laughs> he actually makes him eat two leeks, I think. And by the end of it, um, so he's thoroughly humiliated him, right? And then the other soldier, after the Welsh guy and the other guys have gone away, he says something like, this surely shall not stand. And so you can see that he's, he's plotting his revenge. He's thinking, how am I going to get back at this Welsh guy for having humiliated me, made me eat this leek? We see King Henry do exactly the same thing to the King of France, but it's all sort of veiled in ceremony, you know, and noble and diplomatic language. And they're calling each other dear brother and so on. You can hardly tell. But really what's going on is that King Henry makes the French king eat a leek. You know, he humiliates him. He makes him agree to all his terms uh, of, 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 uh, of peace, so-called. Foremost of which is that the King of France grant Henry his daughter's hand in marriage. And so we see kind of the emptiness of King Henry's victory um, in his conversation with Catherine, the princess of France, the daughter of the king. He's trying to woo her, even though he's sort of already, he knows he's going to win her hand, right? Because her father's going to give her away, because the father has no choice. But he kind of goes through the motions of trying to woo her. And it's not going very well until ultimately uh, he, they arrive at the point where, the, uh, where Catherine says something like, well, it's up to my father. And King Henry tells her, he will say yes. I'm certain he will say yes. And Catherine then says, then so will I. So you see, I don't know if my points here are following one another very well, but I guess the overarching impression I have at the end of King Henry V is one of the emptiness of the spoils of war that he has won. In light of the loss of who he is now as a person, as a man, perhaps the words of our Lord are exemplary here. He says, what, what, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And in King Henry V, I think we see, we see a, a, a pertinent example, an illustration of that teaching. Henry V has apparently gained the whole world. He's conquered all France. France is subjugated to him. He's won the daughter of the king to be his wife. And yet he's lost himself. He's lost that part of himself who appears at night in that one soliloquy where he expresses sort of the, the, the grief, the longing in his heart. He, he, he speaks frankly about the emptiness uh, of his life as a king. And yet, he continues on. What else can he do? He continues on along the way he's set, along the way of his father before him and his ancestral line. Now, the tragedy of Henry V is that, as I mentioned in the last play, we, we got to see him as a young man. And we got to see quite a, a considerable glimpse of who he might have been, of the, the different personality which he had by nature, which he has violently suppressed in order to live up to the image of his father and to fulfill his father's kind of last commands to him, to rule England, to distract the people with 
you know, foreign wars and whatnot, so as to consolidate power, he's doing it. But his life is empty. And you can see there's even a line as he's speaking to Catherine, the princess of France, in an attempt to woo her, where he says something like, imagine, you know, our offspring, <laughs> I, the conqueror of France, and your father, a great warrior, and from, from our two lines will surely spring a, a warrior so great, he'll sail all the way to Turkey and, <laughs> you know, pluck the Ottoman emperor by the beard or something. Basically, a warrior even greater than I who will conquer the whole world. Well, of course, we know that Henry V's son is Henry VI. Very different man, not a warrior, not a warrior, a man of peace. And I see Henry VI in a different light now than I once did. I see Henry VI as a, as a triumph, you know, a triumphal figure. He's also a tragic figure in a way, but not like Henry V, because he never loses who he is. He never sacrifices his character. He remains true to his own nature, and he remains true to his ideals. Until the end of the play, he's the same man we saw in the beginning. Now, he suffered a lot. He's broken by the end of the play. And he, he perseveres in the kingship, you know, until he's ultimately killed, even though he, he doesn't want to be the king. But the difference is he never puts up the kind of facade that Henry V does. He lets everyone know <laughs> he doesn't want to be the king. He doesn't want the trappings. He doesn't want the ceremony. He doesn't want to go to war. He's a man of peace. He's a man who like uh, Margaret of Anjou says, uh, would prefer to be counting aves on his beads, you know, praying the rosary. More fit to be the Pope than to be the King of England. But in Henry VI, we don't see this kind of divided personality, this kind of suppression of a, of a, of a great part of his identity, so as to try to live up and fill a role, a kind of imagined ideal of kingship. Perhaps that's because Henry VI lost his father, at a young age, Henry V passed away before he could kind of impart to Henry VI the same kind of command, dying request that he'd received from his father, Henry IV, to fill his father's shoes, you know, to live up to his reputation and to rule the kingdom in the way that his father had done, to conquer foreign lands and make of England a great empire. So just some reflections. Last week we talked about kind of the central question for Henry V's character is, it was, um, of, of which father am I a son? And his choice was between Falstaff, of course, and his, and his biological father, Henry IV. And he chose his father, the king, so as to make himself into a man modeled after his father, the king, not modeled after Falstaff. He rejects Falstaff. He chooses the king. And he becomes a king in his father's spitting image. But it's interesting just to reflect on the consequences of that choice. Henry gives us a glimpse into what those are during that nighttime soliloquy. Henry VI never has to make that same choice, I think. He doesn't have to choose between two fathers. The difference for Henry VI is he grows up without a father. But in a way, I think God becomes his father. He, uh, he's devoted. He's absolutely devoted to God and to doing God's will, and to, uh, to living a saintly life. So, 
really all the stories of the Henrys are tragedies. <laughs> These are historical plays. They're also tragedies. They're tragedies of fathers and sons. They're family stories. And um, they're wonderful plays. <laughs> I'll conclude it at that. I still have not seen this Netflix, this um, Amazon Prime series, The Hollow Crown, which I recommended a couple of weeks ago. I'm planning to watch it sometime when I have some some free hours, but um, if any of you watch it, please let me know what you think. And uh, it covers all these Henry plays as well as Richard II and Richard III. So I'm excited to see it someday. In the meantime, um, the Henry cycle is now, well, I was going to say concluded, but actually, actually we have one more play ahead of us, Henry VIII. So we'll hear more about that next week. Henry VIII is going to be interesting because, of course, it was during the reign of Henry VIII that the Church of England seceded from the Roman Catholic Church and established their own, uh, established their own ecclesiastical polity. And so it'll be very interesting, I think, to see how Shakespeare handles that. So I'll look forward to sharing with you about it next week. For now, um, I'm sorry to cut this a bit short, I have not, there's no, there's no Saints Day today, so we get off the hook with that. And, uh, well, we'll just have to leave out the theology segment, but I already spoke to you about theology and holy things. So we'll cut it short here. I'm going to go out and head over to the parish over here and help distribute some food. In the meantime, I wish you a very blessed Sunday tomorrow and a blessed rest of your Saturday today. Wow, see how smooth I was there? I completely forgot what day it was. <laughs> anyway, may you have a restful, peaceful week. May uh, you make the most of every moment of rest the Lord gives you. May we work hard, and may the Lord prosper the work of our hands for us. For His glory, for the good of His kingdom, the salvation of His people, and the sanctification of the world. God bless you, now and forever.